really enjoyed that song service this morning. It was a thread that seemed to go through all of it. We sung about a desperate need for revival. We sang, recognizing that this is our Father's world and that when watching, we can see him in all things. The rocks and trees, the skies and seas, the grass moving, the gentle touches of the wind. That gentle touch is what I would like to address this morning. But we sang, Blessed be the tie that binds. In that song, it talks about things being between us as believers and that love that we have that marks us, that Jesus even said would be the mark by which the world would know us. on earth like it is in heaven. And isn't that exactly what he taught us to pray? That it might be on earth as it is in heaven. We also sang God moves in a mysterious way, which from a poetic standpoint and and ideas, it might have been the very deepest song we sang this morning. But the man who wrote it, wrote it just after a failed suicide attempt. He had just attempted to kill himself and he failed. Then he wrote that song. And John Newton, who loved William Cooper as dearly as he did, helped him check into a mental hospital after that. And after having written many songs that we now sing, as you see that name Cooper in the book, that was the last hymn he ever wrote. And yet it is easily the most hopeful. It is also easily the darkest. He talks about quite terrible scenes, terrible scenes of life and terrible scenes of God himself planting his footsteps in the sea and riding upon the storm. As we picture God our Father, and remember the work that he does, we must always remember that he could be revealed as absolutely, brutally terrible, because he is all-powerful. I think sometimes we take words like all-powerful, and we just lump them into an easy category, like a picture you have on the wall, and keep it inside that frame, and don't really think about exactly how powerful the God of all creation is. The reason that matters is because of how subtly and gently he deals with us. Just as that wind that moves on the grass in that song, This Is My Father's World, and how as tender as that touch can be, we have to recognize that tenderness in light of the fact that he spoke the cosmos into being, and that he will one day untie all the elements, and they will burn with a fervent heat. Now, considering he has that power over everything and the delicate touch that he has, remember that he could destroy anything at any time in any way he'd like. And he has elected instead to love and to be tender and careful. He made the laws by which the universe holds together, and we stand in direct violation of them. And yet, he elects to reveal to himself to us, not just through his law, which is a right revelation of him, but through his mercy. And every day when the sun rises, you must remind yourself of what he said when he said that his mercy is new. Every morning, new, new, as in mercy that had never been on the earth before is readily available for us, his dear and beloved. I'd like to take a look at how he elects to operate that mercy in the hearts of man. I have been, I I looked at my notes and I started going through just the five doctrines of grace here in this church. And I thought it was a number of months ago, and it turned out the first one, the notes said they were saved in September of 2020. So apparently I'm taking my time. I haven't always stayed on point, and maybe I haven't been down here enough to visit you all. 
But I would like to look at that I. It is, it's hard to say you have a favorite, whether it's a Bible verse or a book or a letter or an idea or a teaching, but irresistibly called. The irresistible grace of God is just, well, it's irresistibly beautiful. It's a lovely idea. And the idea is this, that God will call us and you cannot resist it. And when you first think of this, you might think of the old Looney Tunes sketch that actually turned out, it started out in a, in a comedy uh, club where this guy was so bad that they, they just came on stage and they took a cane and they put it around his neck and they yanked him off. And many of you have probably seen that, that uh, what became a common uh, view, right? Give him the hook. But it actually did start at one point and it was so funny to the crowd that when bad sketches would come up, they started to call for it. This is in the early 1900s, around 1903, I believe was the date. But if God chose to irresistibly call us that way, and to have something as strong as a shepherd to grab us physically and drag us somewhere, he'd be right to do it. We'd be glad he did it, and no one would be surprised. If God elected to call us by sending down comets as big as this building from the sky, not made of any physical material, but that fell like the Spirit did on the sun on that day, and all the world could see these things falling as far from the east to the west, every time someone was stricken with the gospel, he would have been right to do it. And it would have been no less powerful than how he elected to do it. But God takes pleasure in doing things quietly, in hiding everything he does from the wisest and the richest and the greatest among us, and then revealing them to babes. Because every one of these children, by the time we leave here, will be able to understand what God does in the saving of man when it comes to his irresistible call for them. Again, he could have made it so complicated that only one or two wise gurus walking the earth could have figured out exactly how God does it. Instead, He reveals it in a way that would feed not just his sheep, as he told Peter, but as he also told Peter that day, that would feed his lambs. God is amazing in this way. And it is his character that you must consider when you think about how he does what he does and what he revealed to us and why he revealed it. Right? We should not stay, although he reveals these things to babes, in the infancy infancy of our understanding. We should not just be drinking milk, although we certainly should continue to. We should begin to eat meat as we consider the depths of God's methods of saving us, of how he continually cares for us. I'm reminded of the past, or the um, part in A Pilgrim's Progress, and if you haven't read it, you should consider a required reading and go back and read it. It's the most published book in the English language outside the Bible, and that's for good reason. It's A wonderful, wonderful tale, and every part of it bleeds scripture. But there's this time when Christian, the main character, goes into the house called Interpreter. And the man who lives in the house is called the Interpreter. It's a picture of the spirit. And when he's there, he sees this fire and this person, very mean person, trying to splash water on it again and again and again. And the water, for all the splashing, continues to grow. And he says, come and see. And he takes him on the other side of the wall, and there is another man standing there, privately pouring oil into the fire. Beloved, that is the way that God has continued to light the fire in our hearts, to give life unto us. From the time he starts until the time he finishes, no amount of water can crush that fire, can quench it. You know the passage in John 6, I'm sure. I've uh, preached from it myself here not too long ago. But Jesus says, when teaching to them, they, they thought they knew who Jesus was. And he had just told them that he came from heaven. He revealed something very specific and special about himself. 
Now, if he came from heaven, beloved, everything changes because then he has brought heaven down with him, the heavenly order and everything about it. But it says that he came from heaven. They said, whoa, 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 hang on. We know where he came from. How is it that he says, I came from heaven? And his answer was most telling, not just of where he came from, but of all of God's plans. You must remember that the answer he gives here is about whether or not he came from heaven. He's proving that he came from heaven by showing a little bit of the private conversation in the throne room of God. In John 6, verse 44, he says, well, before that, he says, murmur not among yourselves. He says, no man can come to me except the Father, which has sent me, draw him, and I will raise him at the last day. Now, remember that shepherd's hook that draws. This word is, according to the Strong's Dictionary, is, is more adequately termed drag. But if you say drag him, that has other meanings, right? But that type of draw isn't just to, to gently pull, but it is to completely and entirely drag something from one point to another, right? If I say that I dragged a big piece of wood across my yard using my truck, you will know, just by me saying that, that the wood had no chance, Right? I say that I uh, drew in my children to hold them and tickle them, and they tried to resist, but I successfully drew them in, you would know it's because they had an overwhelming force stopping them from getting away. So likewise, this drawing that Jesus is describing here. But the point here is who does all the work? Who does all the work? It says no man can, and then you can just fill in the blank, except the Father which sent me, draw him. There's a number of things to see there, but the first is that we serve a God that did not just set the earth up like a clock and walk away. We serve a God that did not somehow turn himself into the universe. These are false teachings that exist in the world today, and many people who were even involved in the creation of this country believed things like that the world was just set to place and, and to roll. But he reveals here that God is intimately involved in every moment of everything, right? He makes promises to the Israelites saying things like that he will break their bows. But how does he do that? Does he send a lightning strike from heaven to cause a bow to be broken in the hands of their enemies? No. The way God see works would be much more like is if the tree that the bow was made out of had been struck by lightning long before and there was an imperfection and it was waiting for the exact right moment and then the bow snapped. By something that had been built into all the things around him. Why? Because God is that good. He is that involved. And when he draws us, he uses all of that care and all of that wisdom, all of that power, and all of that strength. There is no resisting. But again, remember that he is directly involved. We know the passage we sing the song. His eye is on the sparrow. Right? Now I know he watches me. Jesus said that, that not one sparrow falls from a tree without him seeing. Right? And that doesn't just mean it is abstractly caught in the field of his vision. When he says sees there, it means understands and cares and knows. And then Jesus says, how much more is a man than a sparrow? Right? And let us not be confused into thinking that just because something has life, that it has the same value as God places on your life. Right? But no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. And then he says, and I will raise him up at the last day. Beloved, this is very, very important. Because our hope, our hope is not one of prosperity here, although he does give that sometimes. 
right? He does give that sometimes. There is no biblical evidence that being um, blessed on earth is some kind of sign of heavenly goodness or heavenly badness, right? passage that Jesus talks about when he talks about a rich man having trouble getting into heaven, that was because the disciples thought that the rich men were the best of them. If you read the Old Testament, you see that obeying God by necessity requires the byproduct of growing wealth. Right? It doesn't take much study in the Proverbs to see that. So they thought it was the best of them. That mistake is sometimes made today. And sometimes we make the other mistake. where we think that it's because someone's poor, they're undeserving of heaven. Beloved, no one is worthy of heaven. Everyone who heard this from Jesus at the time, and every one of you who hears it now, and anyone who has ever read it since, was unworthy of heaven. That's the point of the passage. That no man can come to me except the Father, which has sent me, draw him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Beloved, our hope is not in our ability to understand God. Our desire to understand God is because our hope is already settled. Right? You understand? We don't want to take them out of order. John 3.16 could be translated all the believing ones. Right? All the believing ones. For whosoever are all the believing ones shall be saved. It's a description of what already is. He gives us hope. He gives us belief. And then a byproduct is that we desire to know him more. So we see that his plan starts with him being directly involved and drawing or dragging us to him. See, God's will for your life, it will be executed. I really don't like that line because it makes it sound like God is only in in, uh, the cosmos to serve whatever infinitesimal purpose you're uh, absorbed by at the moment. Not to say that our purposes mean nothing, but his purpose means everything. Whatever it is he has designed for life itself and your life is the most important thing. It's why it becomes so much better and so much more important if God's will for your life is that he would send his son to be hung on a tree and to die for you. Your life will pass as an empty vapor. Countless fathers and mothers are all in the grave now. And we don't remember nearly any of them. From thousands and thousands of years. But our hope is not in ourselves being remembered. It's not in what happens now. Our hope is that he will raise us up again at the last day. He goes on later on in this conversation in uh, John chapter 6. says, I said unto you that no man can come to me except it were given unto him of the Father. He goes on and he enjoys repeating this particular passage chiefly because it is the most important thing. It's the most important thing. And he generally ends there. And many people walk away and they leave unhappy. They leave expecting something better. They leave thinking that this guy does not have it figured out. They leave mad because his teaching took them away from their purposes, took them away from being the center of their doctrine of their theology but beloved they had to be saved and we have to be saved let's take a look at uh, 2nd Timothy in uh, 2nd Timothy 1 I'm just going to read 9 and 10 to you it says who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began but it is now but is now made manifest by the appearing of our savior Jesus Christ who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. There's a lot that happens right there in just a few short words. But if you start at the beginning, it says, who hath saved us? 
saved us. I'm concentrating primarily on his call for us, but you can't look at that without recognizing the way that God talks about your salvation. He refers to it as past tense. When Jesus was on the cross and cried out, it is finished, that term was very commonly used at the time as something like we might say, paid in full. Paid in full. But what was the debt? Who was the debt towards? That's the big trouble here, isn't it? Is that the person who was owed this debt is the one who should have been the most angry at all of us for becoming indebted, having been given everything, including life, and all the people we know and love. Yet still, we sin against the God of all creation. We can't say we didn't understand. We can't say we do it by ignorance. And yet, there we stand. And yet God, knowing this would happen, and by his great love wherewith he loved us, and that's, a, that's one that's worth meditating on, by his great love wherewith he loved us, he sent his son to die and planted before anything was ever made. Now, I like sometimes to think about the father's love for the son, the son's love for the father, and their shared love for us. But if you ever had a difficult job to do, sometimes it's harder the longer you have to wait for it. Have you ever thought about that in context, that Jesus was planning to die for us before anything was ever made? Every moment of uh, the time in eternity past, it's beyond our reckoning, beyond our ability to imagine. And then every moment of all of his dealings, all through the Old Testament, all through everything that happened until he walked the earth, he knew he was going to have to come down and die. Face the one thing that God is not, right? Well, I guess there's many things, but they were all included there on the cross. Sin and death. He was going to taste those things for us. And yet, by his great love wherewith he loved us, he continued to face year after year that oncoming difficulty. Then he walked on the earth for our sakes, which by itself was a great humility. He came down and walked around as these pieces of dirt that we are, walked around in these bodies, having been the very source of life for every one of them. And then... He eventually would go to the cross and to die for us. He says he lays down his life. He said of himself that he laid down his life. No man takes it from him. He lays it down and he said he takes it up again. And the reason for that is a matter that I'd hope to deal with. If you all are going to join us when we go down to Columbia later on today, there's another passage where he talks about that. And he talks about that the father had given him to be also the source of all life. Right? It's one of the things that Jesus says, one of the mysteries that he reveals to us, is that he had life then in himself. That at some point, the Father gave that to the Son. The time and the mystery of all of that is beyond our reckoning. But Jesus revealed that he became the source of all life, which meant that we can then understand how all things were created by him. But also, it means the only thing that could possibly have happened when he was put in that grave was that he was going to rise again. Because he was the source of all life. And the reason that matters is because, as I said, he is going to call us, he's going to raise us up again at the last day. There are going to be times when you maybe don't necessarily believe as firmly as you do at other times. There are going to be times when life is very difficult. And when you face death of loved ones, or even your own death, you may forget. That's why he comforts us so often and so regularly that he has complete control and dominion not just over death. He says, I hold the keys of death in my hands. He, he said that to the disciples at the end. Death and hell, I have the keys of both. But he also holds life. Life and life abundantly. Life beyond our imagination. Every time we look into a microscope or a telescope, we see just how much more life there is than we can see. 
I mean, just to think about how much life exists in germs, right? If 200 years ago you told someone that there's a whole ecosystem of tiny living things all around you everywhere, they'd say you're superstitious and crazy. But it turns out that there is far more life than we've been able to measure happening everywhere, right? And he made all of this. He made all of us. And that same power and that same life is going to be used to bring us back. And yet, in his wisdom, he chose not to reveal this to us in the obvious ways. He says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. There's that word again, purpose. Whose purpose? Whose purpose in your life is the one that we need to find revealed? Do we need to see our purpose in life revealed? Do we need to see God's individual purpose for our individual actions and works? No. The most important purpose you can ever unearth is the one that you couldn't find unless he showed it to you. The most important purpose you can ever unearth is the one you couldn't find unless he showed it to you. According to his own purpose and grace, which was given in Christ Jesus when? Before the world began. See, his plan to draw you has been planned out a long time in advance. If you've ever given a gift that required a little bit of pre-planning, and we actually had the opportunity to do something with my father yesterday where we got to sneak attack him with some stuff that we had to involve him with earlier. He didn't know about it. It was, it was great. It was get, great to finally get to reveal it. Imagine the joy the father has because he loves to bring you salvation. And he finally reveals his work. And so that means that when your eyes are open, that moment is when he has been planning from eternity past. Right? That is a gift he has been wanting to reveal to you from the very beginning. And yet, and yet, the way that it happens is that first we had to be sinners. First we had to be sinners who needed saving. It says that he had abolished death. We were talking on the way in today, uh, a couple of us, about emancipation and the new federal holiday that are being that is uh, recognized today. And I guess a lot of people are going to have off work tomorrow. Slackers. Um, but we all desire emancipation. We all desire the abolition of all those chains that bind us. Here, he didn't just bind those things which might restrict us on earth. Rather, he abolished death itself, which is the end of every man. The only place we were all going to go. He abolished death, and then what? He brought life and immortality. Now, he didn't just bring it generally. He decided to bring it and bring it to light. So you all could have, people he's going to save, he could have saved and just let you live and die in sin and not reveal anything to you and just do whatever he wanted to. But he takes pleasure in revealing these to you. He brings life and immortality to light through what? Through the gospel. But again, I say you must remember the first point, the first purpose, the first reason that he came from above. It says of him in the very beginning of the gospels, it says that she shall bring forth a son and now shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's the reason he came. He came first because we needed saving from our sins. We desperately needed saving from our sins. And he said first to all men on all the earth, the first teaching he ever gave was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Which means repent. The kingdom of heaven is right in front of you. Yet, why would he say those things if he knew we were all dead in sin and could do nothing? 
Our sin had had us in exactly the same place as Lazarus was in the grave. It has left us as blind as a man born blind. And yet he doesn't just call us to repent. He doesn't just give us a requirement that we cannot answer. He doesn't just give us a requirement that we can answer and lose. No. He gives us a call and then he reveals his goodness. It's important, I think, to remember that he doesn't just control the really obvious things like the sun rising every day, like the earth producing food, like the rain coming or not coming at his pleasure. He controls even the sanity of man. Remember that we were, uh, I mentioned about uh, William Cooper, how that he had uh, written that hymn after a bout of terrible depression that took him to the point of wanting to end his own life and trying. And yet, God, through that moment, has blessed all of us who have sung that song even till this day. I mean, just think about that. He went through that depression in part so that we could enjoy that song this morning. Right? Part of God's purposes are that he continues to care for us in ways that we might not necessarily want to go through, in ways that we might not necessarily see. <clears throat> Excuse me, you all know the, um, the parable of the lost son, the boy who wanted his inheritance and left his father, went and spent it all, and then there was a famine in the land he had gone off to. In that, there's a strange saying. Just when he's, about, he's filling his belly with the husks of pigs, the, the, weight, the food waste that was messed with the pigs' food and slop. And if you fed pigs, you know that the food and the waste and the mud and the things that are in the mud don't necessarily always stay separate. Right? So you imagine the kind of things he was eating just to stay alive. It says, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? Now you'd think that before he was eating food that was for pigs, he might have opened his eyes, right? But his problem was one of the heart. And the heart of man is something that only God lords over. Remember the story with Pharaoh, how Pharaoh, he hardened his heart and he softened his heart? says of you that he takes out the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh. A complete change, but strangely, one that you don't expect or see. It's almost as though he does the surgery the same way he did for Adam when he created Eve. He put him to a deep sleep. He had no idea of the massive change that was happening inside of him. Right? No idea of the blood that was being shed in Eden that he might have life with his wife. But this is a story, and it's one that... When Jesus tells a story, you never know because it might have actually happened. But it's a parable. And so it's one that we might think, well, that's just a story. It's not actually talking about God in real life. Well, I'd like you to look at Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 was written by one of, if not the greatest ruler to ever walk the earth. By man's definitions. Nebuchadnezzar was one of the great emperors. And by that I mean he ruled over a great area. The Bible even refers to him as a great tree under which many things gained shape. He was uh, in some ways a blessing and in many ways a curse to the world. But he was a great and a powerful ruler. And in Daniel 4, he looks out at the world and in pride says, look at everything I have. Look at how great I am. And because he didn't give glory to God, God smote him down, broke his mind, left him eating grass like a cow. It says his nails were grown out like an eagle's talons. It says hair was like feathers on a bird. I mean, he lost his mind. He was no longer interested in even so much as keeping himself clean or eating good food. 
And it says, in verse 34 of Daniel 4, it says, And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes to heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. And I blessed the Most High. I lifted mine eyes to heaven, mine understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Now, as individuals, we already have trouble with pride. We already have trouble thinking that anyone else should rule over our lives. Imagine being the ruler of everything you could see. Imagine being so wealthy and so powerful that you could build an obelisk going up to the sky, coat it with gold. I don't know too many people on the planet that could afford to do that right now, even the richest of us, right? Then he made all the people and all the rulers, all the people who were the most powerful close to him, bow down to the thing. And he threatened them all with death, and they all did it, except for three, right? We wouldn't even know about this story if it wasn't for those three, right? This man was powerful, and people bowed down before him. And here he is, sounding exactly like a little child who suddenly understands, who suddenly sees the living God as he is. Why? Because God took an interest in him. What's amazing about this is that God had told him exactly how long he was going to be insane. He gave him a time frame. That's why it starts out saying, at the end of the days, right? God gave him a clock and said, you're going to be out of your mind for this period of time. And then after that, he returned to himself, it says. He gained his sanity again. That is an amazing, amazing tale. But it's not just the way God worked in the Old Testament. There was a wild man in the country of the Gergesenes who was, according to uh, the gospel, unable to be bound. They bound him with chains and he broke them. He would crush rocks and he was out alone in the middle of nowhere near the uh, tombs and things. And it said that he had met Jesus and Jesus cast these demons out of him and sent them into these pigs. And it said of him that when the people came to see what happened, why the, the livestock that they were watching over was cast into the sea, so they found a man sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. Remember, he was a wild man. He would never sit for a moment. He wasn't wearing clothes because he was insane and out of his mind. Beloved, these are pictures of us. Right? Because if your thoughts are tinged with sin at all, in the heavenly uh, measurement, you are insane. Right? You understand? Sin is that poisonous and that bad. Sin ends in death. And all sin that starts in us works its way out. That's why we're called to work out our salvation. Because the matters of our hearts through life become broadcast to the point that the whole world can see them. Right? So these stories are very are, are essentially of paramount importance because God has elected to change us in the same way he changed them. What did they do to suddenly become not insane anymore? Well, Jesus just stepped into the life of the man, the Gergesenes. That was it. That was the beginning and end of how it happened. But the amazing thing about God is that he has planned to do this from the very beginning. We saw that already said once, and we're going to see that said a couple more times, how that he has taken um, us in mind from before the dawn of time. In Philippians, it says, It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, if he has had this purpose from before the dawn of time, why is it that he wants you to do his good pleasure? 
Why is it that he would then make that happen? Why is it that all the good things we can do come directly from him? Because, beloved, every other pleasure must die. Every other pleasure must die. There is nothing you can do that you like to do in life that's fun that will not someday become not fun if you have eternity. It's hard to imagine that because the oldest of us here probably are not even a hundred. So when you think about eternity, eternity, right? To be in eternity and not be completely rooted in only God, to have even the tiniest, most infinitesimal part of the poison of sin means it will grow and grow and grow until it consumes everything over the course of time, right? That means that there is no pleasure outside the source of all life that is sustainable through eternity. Right? And what that means is that you need to have pleasures that are better than everything you've ever known. At least that is before he revealed himself to you. Then he changes our definitions of what a good time is. He changes our definition of what is beautiful, of what is right. He changes our definition of what is just to make it right, to make it more like him. It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, I'm I'm really cherry-picking that verse because there's a lot going on around it, and I don't want to get too uh, distracted and start talking about things like murmurings and disputings and and complaints and all that stuff. I just want to concentrate on the pure, simple, rich goodness that God gives to us to desire and that it's God that gives it to us. That when we begin to desire the good things, he is the source of it. It's God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. In another place, it says that he gives us the desires of our hearts. Now, when you see God changing the minds and hearts of these men through history, when you see God saying that it's his pleasure to give you to do his good pleasure, you ought to reconsider that verse, shouldn't you? The emphasis on desire kind of changes, doesn't it? He gives us the desires of our heart. He's not going to give sinful desires to us. No. He changes our desires to give us to desire those best things in our heart. You follow me? But he gives us to want of things that are worthy of wanting. And the first thing, the first thing that is worth wanting in this whole world is our Heavenly Father. Not the gifts he gives us. Not freedom from the things he saves us from. But himself. His person. Right? himself, his person. And to understand his plan and purpose in the world is something that should not just drive us to be glad of what he has done. Be glad that the responsibility is no longer on us, but to be glad, first and foremost, of him. That you can finally begin to, although through a glass darkly, as though you're looking through some uh, electromagnetic telescope that gives you kind of a, a different version of what's there, but you kind of see for the first time something that is that you didn't know was there. We see distantly who God is. That we might love him as he is, right? Because he gives us the desires of our heart. He gives us to know him, even if it's only a little bit. Why? Why is that important? Why should we be glad that he is doing something so intimate? The most intimate parts of all the relations between men and women on all the earth, the most intimate thing a surgeon has to do on the inside of a body, never goes anywhere near as close to the parts on the inside that God has to touch and deal with and change in you, right? If he was doing anything besides this great thing, it would be highly offensive. He's making dramatic changes to your person without your permission. And thank God for that, right? But why? 
that we might cry out as the elders do in the Revelation, where it says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. I don't know how many of you have told this story, but when God first worked in my life, it was over the course of a matter of months when I was debating Van, who had come to work at my company, and he worked for me. And so we would have these regular conversations back and forth. And if you've ever seen me and Danny have a conversation, you know that I've, I'm going to continue until I get to the bottom of it, one way or the other, right? And, and Danny's the same way. Um, so Van is also that way when it comes to the Bible. And so he would just continue to quote the Bible, quote the Bible, quote the Bible. And I found that I really had nothing to say, which was the first time in my life that it ever happened when I was awake. Praise God that at that time, at the same time, my heart was being broken. All of my friends were being taken from me for various things. Some were things I did, some were things they did, some of them moved away. I dropped a water heater on another. A whole bunch of different things had happened that really changed my whole life. And then all of a sudden it hit me. And I don't know the exact moment it hit me. There's a couple stories I'd like to tell about times when, when the matter was being talked about, but all of a sudden I understood. And then Mallory was far away. Uh, she was living in North Carolina because we were living a very secular life and she didn't know God at all. And I had, I had uh, heard of him when I was young and had left entirely. And so then uh, I had broken up with her uh, a number of times in a row. Then she went to go live for, with our grandparents. Well, she was planning to never see me again, too, just like a lot of other friends I had at the time. And uh, I got back in touch with her because basically everything had burned down. I thought, well, I should at least talk to her because we'd been friends for a long time before that. And I said, hey... I figured out the meaning of everything. And I could hear, it was like the sound of marbles rolling across a wooden table, the sound of her eyes rolling on the phone. She said, oh yeah? What's that? She's always very patient with me. I married her. And I said, well, everything is for the glory of God. And I remember where I was sitting on the bed, and, and the thought I hadn't really fully understood until I said that to her. I mean, I kind of got it, but then at that moment, it clicked. And then she became a little different on the phone. She became a lot more apprehensive. She goes, oh, really? She told me later that she thought I'd been brainwashed and been dragged into some kind of cult. Ironically, that's exactly what happened. That I was brainwashed, but that someone actually did wash my brain. That someone who loves me far more than I have loved him back went into places that I couldn't reach and removed things that I couldn't stop and changed me. And has continued to change me day after day after day. And I thank God that he continues to do that. But all we can say after all things is that we're his workmanship. The whole point, the whole point of all of it is that for his pleasure, they are and were created. And for his pleasure, you are recreated. Right? He doesn't just leave you as a broken down mess that we made ourselves and that our fathers made us to be. Right? Remember, we're shaping in iniquity in our mother's womb. We both inherited sin and we did our best to expound on it as far as we could. And yet... God has been good to us, and he has been merciful, and he has changed it at us, at his pleasure. That's what makes this so good. That's what makes the fact that he chose to do this in the way that he did, outside of our power, acceptable. And not just acceptable, but praiseworthy. The kind of thing that we can rise up in the morning and sing about. It's not just that he decided to privately, behind the scenes, do a work in our heart. We don't need to worry about what credit needs to come to us, because we know exactly where all the credit belongs. And for some strange reason, for some strange reason, he involves us. I don't understand why he does that. He gives you command. He said, work out your salvation. Hey, guess what? I gave you the inheritance of life itself in your person. 
And he tells us to work out our salvation. Why? Why? So that we can take the same kind of pleasure he can, even though we never had the muscles or the mind or the heart or any of the abilities to do. He gives us everything and then wants us to take part in the very pleasure he takes. In Ephesians, it says, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. That's trying to show it to you here, right? That he has shown it again and again in the scriptures. What is the mystery of his will? According to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. Remember, beloved, he loves, he delights to give to you the kingdom. Now, if someone had offended you as much as we offend him, I think it's very unlikely that we would be able to properly, without any guile in our heart, love and give and give and give and give the way that he has. And yet he does. It's another one of those things that makes it amazing. How can we get lost in religious debates knowing all that he has done for us? How can we get lost being angry at each other about the way that we view the Bible, knowing full well that our view is still going to be messed up? That he's the only one that is the perfect interpreter of his word, knowing that he has done all of this for us. The ability to talk about how God works salvation in the world is a byproduct of how good he has been to us. Right? Think about that. The only reason we can talk about, about how God does this, the only reason we can even come to a disagreement is because he did it in the first place. That on all the earth, it's revealed that God has elected to send his son to die for us. And then the father and the son daily administer mercy by dealing with our hearts, both privately and then as it works out publicly. To know the mystery of God's working in the earth is the great pleasure of existence. To know the source of life, right? I mean, the birds sing. They know. They know. They're not confused, right? And we have so much more. Yeah, we get confused. But we should be glad that he has made known to us the mystery of his will. And part of that is that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. So you see, he doesn't just love us for his own purpose. Father loves the Son and delights to give him these things. So that at the end of all things, Father is going to have it be that the Son is glorified. We've seen this happen already. Because as he ascended up into heaven before those hundreds of witnesses that we might know about even to this day, he went up there to sit at the right hand of the father while the father makes his enemies his footstool. Now that's, that's honoring. I mean, think about that. If I did that to somebody, if I said, you just rest, I'm going to do all the work for you. You would know that I really care for and am honoring and elevating that person. This is what the father does for the son. What love is there? That here in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both things which are in heaven and things which are on earth, even in him. Beloved, that's why he does what he does. Because he's bringing things to love the Son. So how fitting is it that you should have awoken in you a life and a light and a desire to know him, and then that you should also love the Son. God shows here that's the purpose of everything he's doing. That he's going to gather all things in heaven and in earth. The passage is clear. That's another one of those ones that even the children can understand. Right? That he might gather together in one all things in Christ. In heaven and in earth. And again, I remind you of that part of the prayer that Jesus taught us. That we should pray that things in heaven might be the same way as they are in earth. Or vice versa. Right? Heaven, as Jesus brought it down when he came down to live for us. To die for us. That we might see that worked out in the earth. And that we might see this picture of the father honoring the son and the son honoring the father again and again and again, like a magnifying glowing heat 
that they push back against each other, we might see that here below, that we might honor one another in the ways that the Bible teaches us. Andy's been teaching out of Ephesians. He may even have uh, delivered a couple messages here, but he recently delivered one on the subject of the relationships in Ephesians 5 and how that's supposed to point us to Christ, how that God has honored us by giving us of his life. I mean, think about how much he gives us by not just making us in his image. That by itself is honor enough for mankind to be, what's the word I'm looking for here, humbled. To be almost to the point of a shame, if there wasn't sin, and with there being sin, to be perpetually shamed. You walk around showing God with your frame. Nothing else on the earth does that. He already honored us that much. Then he sends his son. He plans from all eternity past something for us that we might be raised up, right? We were, by sin, we were just going to go to a certain point and then fall and then be sunk beneath the earth. And that was the end of our purpose. Instead, he sends the son who gives us life and then has us past tense, glorified, raised up and honored in heaven. And if God so honors us, how much more should we honor those in our circle, in our lives? You know, it's Father's Day. It's a, the history of holidays is one of my favorite subjects. And Father's Day was because there was already a Mother's Day, right? Everybody understands why you need Mother's Day. I mean, think about how many men in prison have a mom tattoo on their arm, right? They never have a dad tattoo, right? It's with good reason. It's understandable how great our moms are. But there was a young woman who, uh, her mother had died when they were young. They had a number of children, and their father had to fill both roles. And she said, well, why do we have one and not the other? And in honoring her father, she gave all of us an opportunity to practice and honor our fathers. In so doing, she did the same things that the father and the son are doing for each other and that they are presently doing for you. Presently. Honoring you and elevating you by giving you of the life that you should have had stripped from you the moment Adam and Eve sinned. And then the moment you first sinned. And then again, while you're being shaped in your mother's womb in sin, he doesn't just give you access to it. He privately prepares you and makes it possible that you can then have this life. You can live in this life. And then it says, again, past tense, glorified, he raises you up with him in heavenly places. What honor, what goodness, and why? Why does he do it? Again, I ask, do you remember? Because he is pleased to gather all things that came from him and pleased, again, to reveal it. The incessant truth of this doctrine about you being irresistibly called is that he doesn't just love to do it, he loves to show it to you. He loves to prove to you how that he did the work of salvation in your heart. You not only could do nothing about it, but you're glad to have it because it changes your desires. It changes what you want and then makes you fit for a better kingdom. One that both is here and is to come. What a wonderful blessing. Beloved, we are his workmanship. Now, even as grown men or newborn babes, we were his workmanship without the work of salvation. Right? That's one of the things that knowing more about God reveals to you is just how much he was already doing physically in his creation of you, in all the blessings he has given us. I mean, think about it. The surgery he performed on Adam gave you every person you know and love. Right? No more loneliness. Right? Adam knew loneliness, and God said it was not good for him. And yet, he elected that we would, he would have, by his plan, something far better for us. And I don't think Adam could have imagined us playing frisbee out in the yard someday together when he saw Adam, or Eve, first made, right? But that was one of the byproducts, right? Could you imagine all the meals we were going to have together and all the times we were going to be together, or us being here gathered in this place for the purpose of knowing more of his purposes in the earth. But remember, we are his workmanship. So of the good things he did for us like that, the pinnacle and the very best of them, 
was the sending of his son, Jesus. I'd like to go to that well-worn passage in Ephesians, in chapter 2, where it says in verse 5, Even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us together with Christ. Even when we were dead in sins, he hath quickened us, what? Together. Right? Again, this wasn't just some individual matter. It's not about, you know, God's will for your life. It's not about what things you're doing along your way to accomplish whatever your goals or purposes are here below. What matters is his purpose. And his purpose was that in sin, we should be saved together, communally, because it's not good for a man to be alone. But it is good that we should have him. Indeed, the tragedy was that when Adam and Eve sinned and they were torn asunder from their relationship with God, they were far more alone than Adam was when he walked in the garden with God. I'm sure there was two of them, but they no longer walked with the source of life. The Spirit of God was no longer readily available to them, and the Father no longer would speak through the Son as they walked in the garden. But we here, being like them, and I hope, I hope upon hope, that they also are in the elect. I think there's reasonable evidence to suggest that they were. If you look at their son sacrificing and many other things, I think they understood. I think they desired him. And so I would love and long to be a part of meeting our first father and mother, but knowing that from them all the way until the last man is saved, that we are quickened together is a huge comfort because it's the same spirit that worked in their hearts, that worked in the hearts of the prophets, that worked in the hearts of the kings of Israel that God might have dealt with or the, um, <clears throat> any of the 7,000 that God said that he had preserved that would not go away in the time of Elijah or whether it was working in the hearts of those in the gospel or all across the last 2,000 years since he came, he worked together. See, in God's sight, they all happened together because that private work that he does in the heart of man, he does exactly the same way with the same things using the same living spirit. So we are unified and we are his workmanship. It says, by grace you are saved. And again, he says this again. He says, and hath raised us up together. Remember, like I said, we should have been, you know, about varying between here and here above the ground and then sunk into the ground. And that was our end. That should have been it. Right. You see even the um, various religions of the world, some some build uh, high buildings to put bury people in. They still bury them in the ground. Sometimes they put them on big pyres so that they could be higher up towards heaven and they burn them. What happens to the ashes? Back down to the ground, goes into the dirt. Every one of us should have just been sunk in the earth and that should have been the end. But he had something better for us. It says that he raised us up together again, past tense, glorified, raised, saved, done. It is finished, paid in full, right? So the work he does in our hearts is a completed work that we should, again, be raised up and that we might be able to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Remember, to be able to sit together is particular. Remember what Jesus is doing right now. He's sitting. He's resting. I'll go to prepare a place for you. Yeah, he's, he's up there. But he also says, sits at the right hand of God while the Father makes his enemies his footstool. We also get to take that kind of comfort that any enemy we might have in the earth, any people who might oppose us in any way, God is the one who will deal with them, and we get to rest with the Son. The Son, it says, sits in heaven, except for one occasion when he stands. If you remember the story of Stephen when he was stoned to death, as he was dying, he looked up, he said, I see the Son of Man standing 
So you see, he rests, except, as it says, dear in the sight of God is the death of his saints. He rests, except for us, except when he would receive us home. But he, it says, rests, and we get to rest in him. This is why. It says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. In the ages to come, he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. Again, here, the gentle but firm nature of his purpose. Right? The goal was to show, not just to be kind to us, but also to show his kindness to us. Again, to bring to light the life that he brings through the gospel. Right? He takes pleasure in having all the world know how both just and loving and merciful he is. How he is holy, and yet he breaks through that separation that should be between us. He tears the curtain, and he takes pleasure in having the whole world know that though we are completely unworthy, he's coming for us. Right? And that his purposes will stand. It says, for by grace you are saved through faith. By grace you are saved through faith. Now, I've dealt with the through faith and through belief thing on another, uh, on other occasions. We are uh, absolutely nearly out of time. Um, but So I'm not going to go into that too much right now. But it says that by, by grace you're saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Again, the primary concentration here is first the intimacy by which he runs into our lives and grabs us and changes us. All the pictures he gives us of washing our heart. I mean, just imagine a surgeon opening your heart and like washing it, you know? Hopefully they won't use any, any soap. I'd hate to see the bubbles get, get stuck in there, right? Or him taking out a heart and putting in a new one. Since he changes the inner man, as he breathes life into us. All of this dealing so intimately is done by him through kindness. It says, <clears throat> but it is not of yourselves. It is the gift, something he takes pleasure in giving us. So yes, <clears throat> it's forceful, but it's also tender. It is going to completion beyond a doubt to the point that it's spoken of in past tense, but also it is given in a way that is full of pleasure for everybody involved. I'd like to say, especially you, but I don't think that's true. I think God takes so much more pleasure in his creation than you yet take in him. But I think that will change. It says that we will again be changed, so that we will be like him, so that we can see him as he is. Right? To see something in that way means to understand it. And I assure you, when you understand God, you will understand why he takes pleasure in everything he lays his hand to. He takes so much pleasure in his son, because he loves his son, and why he takes pleasure in you. You want to talk about humbling? That will be a very humbling day in the best of ways. Why? It says, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that's the secret, isn't it? That's the secret of why he chooses to do this privately and behind the scenes. He knows you. He knows your frame. He knows how quick you are to boast as soon as you have a moment. How quickly we want to use our own uh, skills and abilities as an excuse to look down on people or things around us and God himself and elevate ourselves. So he saves us from that. Now, if that's not tender love, I don't know what is. He saves us from our pride by making sure we don't get involved. Right? What a loving and a good God. It says again, For he, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That is the end of it, isn't it? That we should, while we are here, be able to walk in the very good works that we were unable to access. Right? It's like being able to lift heavier things after having been um, a man born a cripple. 
You see that in the Bible, right? It's a good picture of what we're able to now do in our lives. Not for the purpose of boasting, because we weren't able to change that. You know that the cripple, once he was able to run, if he ever ran a race and won, he could never take credit for it, but he sure would be glad about it, wouldn't he? Far more glad than anyone else who ever won a race, I would think. Right? Because he understood that those good works that he was then able to do came from somewhere else. And so I say, beloved, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. We are in him. Right? We are created in Christ Jesus. Again, that's another one I'm out of time to get into. But we were in him when he rose from the grave. We were in him, and in so doing, we are his workmanship. Let us remember. Thank you for your good attention.